If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the October 19th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we salute Spirit Day on the 15th, National Coming Out Day on the 11th, and the entire month of October, which is dedicated to LGBTQ history with a story about a lesbian icon, our favorite coming-out story, and Dan Savage, originator of the It Gets Better campaign. Dan Savage is author of the internationally syndicated Relationship and Sex column, Savage Love, editorial director of the Seattle Weekly newspaper, The Stranger, and a regular contributor to PRI's This American Life. But these days... He's even better known for a message that started a movement. Hi, everybody. It's me, Kathy. Hi, I'm Chris Colfer. Hey, what's up? I'm Jake Shears. Hi, I'm Tim Gunn, and I have a very important message for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, and questioning youth. And that is, it gets better. It really does. Hi, I'm Thomas Roberts from MSNBC, and I wanted to make this video for anybody out there who needs to know it gets better. I know personally firsthand that it does, and I know this because I understand how hard it is when you're struggling at school or at home, uh, when it seems that you're different and there's no one else out there like you, and no one's going to understand what's going on in your head. And then if you told them what's really going on, you fear that they wouldn't love you or be your friend anymore. And I know it because I went through all of it. Hey guys, I'm Justin Bieber. I just wanted to say there's nothing cool about being a bully, and if you're getting bullied, make sure to tell someone and, you know, it gets better. And... If you're a bystander, make sure to step in and, you know, help out. I'm Dan Savage. How'd you go from sex advice columnist to our national spokes gay? <laughs> well, there's a lot of people who would object to my describing myself as the spokes gay. Stephen Colbert called me that once. You know, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. I speak for myself, and I speak to gay issues and things I care about. I don't know how I went. You know, it's a mystery to me. I, I write the filthiest sex advice column in the world. I tell a lot of dirty jokes, and I somehow parlayed that into the occasional sort of serious thumb sucker in the New York Times or the occasional, you know, heartfelt piece on This American Life. And uh, it amazes me. You would think, based on some of the things I've said and done and written over the years, that I would be kryptonite to mainstream media. But I think the mainstream has really shifted and uh, swamped me in the process. What inspired you to create the It Gets Better campaign I was reading last fall about the suicides of Justin Aberg and Billy Lucas, and 
had the same reaction that so many queer adults have when we hear these stories. Like, I wish I could have talked to that kid. I wished I'd had access to that kid and been able to tell him that however bad it was right now, that as a commenter on my blog wrote, addressing Billy Lucas after his death, it gets better. Things get better. But a lot of these queer kids, they don't know it. They don't realize it. They don't think, you know, a queer 14-year-old who kills himself is saying that he can't picture a future with enough joy in it to compensate for the pain he's in now. He's also saying that he may know that there are happy, content, safe, loved gay adults out there, but he doesn't know how you get from being the bullied queer kid to that gay adult, that secure, safe, happy gay adult, because he hasn't seen it in his own family. You know, a kid who's bullied because of his race, religion, class, goes home to family members, parents of the same race, same religion, same class, who got through exactly what they're getting through and are successful adults. Queer kid goes home to no role models, no examples. And so, you know, reading about Billy Lucas and feeling like, I wish I could do something, I wish I could talk to these kids, and feeling, I can't talk to these kids. I would never get permission from their parents to talk to them. And the, the kids who are queer who most need to hear from gay adults and get a message of hope from us about our lives and their lives and their futures are least likely to have the kind of parents who would allow them to talk to gay adults. And I was just doing on all this when it occurred to me that in the YouTube era, I didn't need permission from parents anymore to talk to their kids, whether they wanted us to or not. That I could record a video, use my column, use my podcast to encourage other LGBT adults to do the same and just look into a camera and talk to queer kids about our lives, about how we'd been there, the trials we faced in adolescence, the bullying we experienced, and how we got from there to where we are now, and illuminate the path for them, and give them some reassurance that, however bad it is right now, that joy is coming their way, and joy that will more than compensate for what they're suffering. Institutionalized homophobia plays a really big role in how kids feel about themselves. But on the federal level, we're making headway in a couple important areas. What impact will this make in the lives of gay kids? The difference that the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell is going to make in a lot of gay kids' lives is that military service has always been held out as a way for kids who are in bad circumstances, who are in poverty, who don't have a family that can pay for them to go to college, can access those things, can get up and out of poverty, can get an education paid for. And all of that was closed to queer kids. So, you know, they would listen to the pitches, join the military, and you can go to college and know that that wasn't true for them. So that's a very real and immediate and tangible benefit to queer kids in the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. There's a lot of queer kids who now will have that option. I would prefer we lived in a country where people didn't have to join the military to have access to education, but you know, you go to school with the country you have, not the country you'd like to have, to spin a Donald Rumsfeldism in our direction. And when it comes to marriage and other rights, it makes a tremendous psychological difference to know that you are a full and equal citizen. And despite what you may be hearing from your peers or even your family members, the government is on your side, that you are entitled to the same rights and responsibilities and privileges as everyone else. And you are not unequal and you're not sinful and you're not unfit for marriage or unfit for military service or unfit for full civil equality. And that can be a boost. You and your partner were married in Vancouver. How did that change your relationship? I don't think my partner and I's decision to marry really changed our relationship. It affirmed what already existed. It affirmed the facts on the ground. We were married in our hearts. It actually changed the way some people saw our relationship, including our son. It meant a lot to him, even though he was pained by the experience of going to a wedding, going to our wedding, going to our wedding reception, uh, although people at the wedding reception besides Deej didn't know it was a wedding reception. Um, he now looks at his parents and goes, they're married. And it comes up every once in a while. We'll, we'll, we'll joke about 
breaking up or we'll joke about uh, you know being indifferent to one another like Terry and I will, like just tease each other about I couldn't care less about you and DJ will go no no you guys got married and like a lot of kids he really is tapped into that sort of bedrock security that that provides an assurance you know not a fail-safe assurance because a lot of couples who marry and have kids get divorced but it says to him that we're committed to each other and committed to him and committed to being his parents and staying together you know he picked out our wedding rings which I'm wearing right now which have a skull on them at a rocker store we stopped in quickly to pick up some temporary wedding rings and we're still wearing them seven years later he picked out these rings that have a skull on them because marriage means you're married till you're dead till death do you part and he wanted us every time we looked at our finger to remember that Terry and I are not allowed to break up, that the only way we're ever going to not be married is if one of us dies. Well, actually, legally, you can't get divorced in your state. That's right. We're talking to Dan Savage, author of the Relationship and Sex column, Savage Love, editorial director of Seattle's The Stranger, a regular on PRI's This American Life, and creator of the It Gets Better campaign. Dan, what was it like for you as a teenager? I like to say I grew up in a Catholic and religious family. It's sort of two separate and distinct things. It was hard for me as a teenager. I thought about suicide. I wasn't as brutally bullied as my partner was, but I did think about suicide only in that I thought it would be easier for my parents to have a dead kid than a gay kid, that it would be the good Catholic boy, loving son, mama's boy thing to do, just to end my life so they didn't have to ever know that they had a gay kid. And so it was hard when, you know, I realized I didn't want to end my life and made up my mind that I was going to have to come out to them. It was hard. You know, for a long time I hid from them. The people I relied on the most and needed the most at the time in my life when I most needed adult input, advice, supervision, support, I couldn't go to. My brother Billy was bullied in the same middle school where I was bullied at the same time. We're very close in age. And he's straight. And he had it worse than I did. He was much more brutally bullied. And I called him when the It Gets Better campaign was launched and was going viral, just to say, I remember that you had it worse than I did. I remember, don't think I forgot. And he said something really smart, very typically Billy. He said, yeah, I had it worse at school, but at the end of the day, I went home and I had mom and dad, and you didn't. And that's the difference for bullied queer kids compared to bullied straight kids, is we go home at the end of the day to parents who we're either not out to and so we can't ask for their support, or who are also bullying us. And then we're dragged to churches on Sunday where we're bullied from the pulpit. Straight kids who are bullied at school go home to a shoulder to cry on and then aren't dragged to a church on Sunday where they're told that God hates nerds and band geeks. And the isolation for queer kids is worse. What sort of feedback have you had from kids? The response has been overwhelming. We've heard from thousands and thousands of kids who've responded at itgetsbetter.org to us, who've responded at each individual video to the person who posted that video. We've heard from parents thanking us for creating the project because it allowed them to demonstrate to their gay kids that they supported them because they they sat down at computers to watch these videos together. I've heard from parents who are in emergency rooms with their kids who attempted suicide and they're watching the videos. They're finally talking about their kid's sexuality and watching the videos and they're thanking us. Some of the stories we've heard are heartbreaking. And some of them are really elating. You know, we heard from a girl who's being very brutally bullied by her family who watched a bunch of the videos and then they didn't just give her hope for her future, they gave her hope for her family, that her family would come around. Because so many of the videos are by people whose families had the same reaction hers did. When she came out, families reacted very negatively, very hostile, and who in time came around and became very loving and supportive 
And so she watched the videos and didn't just think, okay, one day I'll be happy. One day I'll have friends who love and accept me. She watched the videos and thought, one day my parents won't be in the same place they're in right now. One day my parents will be better. And she sort of got hope. I mean, the whole point of the campaign was when we launched it, we you know, quoted Harvey Milk, you got to give them hope. And we've heard from so many kids who it's done just that. It's given them hope. There's never been a better time than right now to be a gay, lesbian, bi, or trans person in America. There are unfortunate incidents. There are always going to be hate crimes and always going to be jerks. The test is how the culture and society responds when there's been a wrong. Like, how does society respond when someone's discriminated against because of their race or their religion or their sexuality? And increasingly, the society's response uh, when it encounters anti-gay discrimination is lining up with how our society responds when it encounters anti-anything else discrimination. There's unfinished business. And uh, DOMA, rights for trans people, health care, I think, is a right. There's a lot left to do, but... You know, I just think of my own life. When I came out to my parents, when I was a teenager, I wasn't just telling them that I kissed boys and I liked boys. I was also telling them I would never get married. I would never have children. I would have a very marginal career, if I had a career at all. I would never be a Marine. And just in my lifetime, all of that has changed. I am married. I have children. I have a great career. And now I can be a Marine if I wanted to be a Marine. I don't want to be a Marine, but I could be a Marine. And just knowing I could be a Marine makes a difference. The world is changing for gay people. What's next for the It Gets Better campaign? The It Gets Better campaign is now a standalone website at itgetsbetter.org. We've raised tens of thousands of dollars for the Trevor Project, which talks kids off the ledge. Glisten, which helps improve environments in schools, so we have fewer queer kids crawling out on the ledge. And the ACLU's Lesbian and Gay by Trans Youth Project, which doesn't get the credit or support from the gay community that it deserves. They do tremendous work. And moving into the future, what we want to do is maintain the website, catalog and tag all the videos so that you know a trans kid can go to the website and call up all the trans videos and raise enough money to maintain the website and then every year around the beginning of school do some outreach, do some advertising. A lot of kids have found out about the It Gets Better campaign through People magazine and reports on the news and things in the newspaper and stuff on the radio and there's been a lot of talk about it, that chatter's going to die down. And so, you know, there's a kid who's four years old now who's going to be 14 in 10 years who may need to see these videos. We have to make sure that there's enough outreach and enough money for the outreach 10 years from now that that kid can find his way to the website. And kids are coming out at a younger and younger age. I knew, well, think about when you were 12. My son knew he was straight at like 10, 11. You know, my son had to come out to us about being straight. We had told him the odds were 95-ish percent that he would be straight, and we wouldn't be surprised if he was straight. But, you know, there's a moment where he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm straight. And nobody's surprised when a, ten, when a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid knows he's straight. But even gay people are surprised when a kid that young knows he's gay. This has been a conversation with husband-father, author-activist Dan Savage. For more information online, check out itgetsbetter.org. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I know you're lonely, but please know that you're not The only kid out there who's been in that spot My friends and I made it through, and we're doing fine It gets better, I swear It gets better, but you've got to stick around and make it there It's hard to stand on your own, but you're stronger than you know It gets better, it gets better I swear If you have friends and family
are true and stand by you through the pain. Let them be your shelter from the rain. But if you feel you need to hide to come out the other side, well, that's okay too. Whatever gets you through. Cause it gets better, I swear It gets better, but you've gotta stick around and make it there It's hard to stand on your own But you're stronger than you know It gets better, it gets better, I swear It gets better, it gets better, I swear Find more information about the It Gets Better project at itgetsbetter.org. Don't go away. We'll be right back. James Beard, father of American gastronomy, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. James Beard was an eccentric American chef and food writer who helped change American eating habits. Born in 1903 in Portland, Oregon, his first memory of food traces back to the Lewis and Clark Exposition of 1905, where he saw how triscuits and shredded wheat biscuits were made. With his mother's encouragement, he was making bread by age eight. In 1937, Beard moved to New York City to study singing and acting. Not finding success with that, he opened a catering company with a friend called Hors d'Oeuvres Incorporated. In 1940, he wrote a cookbook containing his catering recipes. Starring in a television cooking show in 1946, Beard was off and running in the world of food, even establishing the James Beard Cooking School in 1955. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Michael Mazaris. Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Out loud and proud since 1974. They had to keep their hands off girls in order to keep the Army's hands off them. That's the storyline of the darndest, gayest, funniest fairy tale you've ever seen on the motion picture screen. That's the gay deceivers in absolutely divine color. The Gay Deceivers stars Kevin Coughlin, Larry Casey and Brooke Bundy and introduces the sensational find of the year, Michael Greer. Now, you see, the Gay Deceivers is all about... What? Well, we can't exactly tell you the storyline because it's not for Mom and Dad and the Apple Pie crowd. But for you groovy cats, it's out of sight. So, is he or isn't he? Only his draft board and his girlfriend know for sure. You won't want to miss the comedy show of many a year. The Gay Deceivers. What kind of a movie is this? Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. A few years back, when we threw open the doors of the KPFK studio and invited listeners to record their coming out stories, there was a great response. But when we spied Jessica with her shy, angelic younger brother, Ben, lugging his cello across the parking lot, we knew it'd be something really special. It was. I'm Benjamin, and this is my sister, Jessica Pensner. She's 16 years old. Hi, I'm Jessica. This is my brother, Ben, and he is 13 years old. Okay, Ben, so um, when did you come out? I was 10, fifth grade. It was during a school day. And my teacher, Jude, 
he was gay too. He is gay too. And I, I thought that I liked a couple guys in my class. I was really, really confused because of all the things that was going on. I was 10. <laughs> I don't think I knew very much about that kind of stuff. So then the first time I told anybody was my mom. I went back to my mom's house after school, and then I sort of put my face to the back of my mom on my mom's back. Then I said, Mom, I think I'm gay. And, and she was like, what did you say? And then I said, Mom, I think I'm gay. And then she was like, oh, okay. And that's all she said. And you told me after that, right? Mm-hmm. How was that experience for you? Because I couldn't see inside your head at the time. <laughs> it was really different for me. I've never experienced something like that before. So we were in Mom's room, and... I told you, and I said, Jessica, I think I'm gay. And then you said, I think I'm bi. And then when we hugged, we were crying, and then I felt really, really open. I felt, like, really close to you. And that was, like, the first time that we felt so close, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh, because you were only 10, and that was a bad time for me, too. We were both just going through some really weird times. <laughs> I'm really glad you told me then. Me too. So how did you feel about it? Oh my gosh. Uh, well, when you told me, I wasn't just crying. I was sobbing. I didn't know how to feel, like to tell you the truth. I have never been against gays or against anything that they stood for because, you know, I was, still am bisexual. But you... My brother being gay was such a trip for me. I wasn't sad that you were gay. I wasn't disappointed or anything. It was just so overwhelming. And then afterwards, I had some time to feel, to think about it and to figure out my feelings, and I was so happy. <laughs> I was one of those girls who would always want the gay best friend <laughs> who we could, you know, hang out with and go talk about girly things, and, oh, my gosh, that person is my brother. That, it, it's amazing to have you, Ben. <laughs> it really is. And the fact that you're there for me and are always so nice. You're just such a nice person, and I can't believe <laughs> that I have you. I, and that you knew by 10? I mean, really? <laughs> yeah, it was really weird for me, too. What did you talk to Jude about, anyway? Oh, fifth grade teacher. After I told our parents, our dad thought of um, go talking to Jude because he knew that he was gay because we found out about a paper that they handed out at school. That said that Jude was gay? No, it, that, that said that Jude was living with his husband. Oh. Yeah. Which basically says that Jude is gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then Dad said, maybe we should go talk to him and see what his perception of this was. So after school, Dad and Mom went to the school after all the classes were done. We sat down at, at one of the tables, and then I told Jude, and then he was like, okay. And then... We talked about how he was gay and how he came out, that he couldn't come out until college. 
and he thought of me as really brave of going, of coming out at 10 years old. And then we talked about his high school years, how he forced himself to keep his girlfriend because his friends were not gay supporters and how he thought of it. Then he said that um, it felt like torture. So he came out in college and he regretted it that he didn't come out sooner and that he was really happy for me. Are you happy that you came out so soon? Yeah. I don't have to lie as much as I thought I did. Did you know at 10 or did you know earlier than that? I had a pretty okay perception of it at 10. I was still iffy about it. There was this one person that I did tell in middle school. I forgot who he was, but he said that you can't know until you're 17. So I was like, oh, okay. But later on, I got a better understanding of it, and then I said, wow, that was such a lie. But anyway, at 10, I was not sure at all. I was confused, as most people are at that age, if they think of it. Well, now we go to Renaissance Arts Academy, right? Yeah. And we came there right after that whole fifth grade fiasco. Oh, yeah. And our school is very open with that kind of thing. And anyone who is of any sexual orientation does not feel out of place. Did you feel like you had a better understanding of who you were in that school? Yeah. I had a lot of people to talk to. I felt so much better at Ren Arts than at VCCS, my middle school, because it was really small, so everybody knew each other, and it was really interesting to talk to people about it because they were really open to the subject. And there are some gay people at our school, just not as many. Is it easier to talk about it with your friends at Renarts? Yes. Yeah, it really is. I actually talk about it as a regular subject now because I've talked to them about it so much. There's this place called the Renaissance Fair, and there's this girl named Taylor, and she's a friend of mine, and she's a lesbian. And me and her talk about it in it. In detail, it's really nice to talk to her about that. Are you glad that you have someone like that that you can release what you've been holding in for so long to? <sighs> yes, it really is. It's. I'm so happy that I don't have to bottle it up so much. It makes me feel incredible. It's awesome. It's if you if you do, it's, I've done it before. I've stopped myself from telling people that I was gay. And I have to lie. And I'm not the best liar. I'm, I suck at lying. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> then they ask me again. And I have to lie again. Well, you don't have to lie anymore. I know. You don't have to lie to anyone, even if 
they are against what you are. It doesn't matter. They can't do anything to you. And if you ever need help, I'm here, and Sierra is here, and all our friends are here. So don't worry about it, okay? Okay. So now you're at Renarts, and you're the viola prodigy. <laughs> you are the gay, blonde, blue-eyed viola prodigy. <laughs> how does that feel to be so wonderful? I like it how everybody knows me, and I don't know them. It's fun. Sometimes I feel kind of famous at that school. It's really, really nice. That's good. You're going to play something, right? Yeah. You want to go do that right now? Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. Go for it. I'm going to be playing the second pop cello suite in D minor.
coming out, whether it is as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer, still matters. When people know someone who is LGBTQ, they are far more likely to support equality under the law. Beyond that, our stories can be powerful to each other. These days, Ben Pensner is out of school, doing well in Los Angeles, and is more likely to play the viola. Don't go away. We'll be right back. James Beard, American Food Authority, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. What everyone knew about James Beard was he was always enthusiastic about cooking and serving good food. Julia Child described him as a big man over six feet tall with a big belly and huge hands. An endearing and always lively teacher, he loved people, loved his work, loved to gossip, loved to eat, loved a good time. But what most people didn't know was that Beard was gay. His memoir stated he knew at age seven. His mother spoke positively to him about his sexual orientation, for she had gay friends. Beard had a number of male companions up to his death in 1985. Afterwards, his friends and former students established the James Beard Foundation and purchased his Greenwich Village townhouse to house it. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Michael Mazaris. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. The late Jean Cordova founded the influential and groundbreaking newspaper The Lesbian Tide in 1971 and was a powerful local activist and national organizer. Cordova was one of the great leaders of the early lesbian feminist movement. Steve Pride reports. Born at the dawn of the baby boom generation, Jean Cordova has always been ahead of her time in catching the next wave of social change and taking a visionary leadership role in making a difference. I've known her partner, one of the producers of KPFK's Feminist Magazine, for years, but never had the opportunity to meet Cordova, the legendary activist, writer, publisher, organizer, and butch icon, until now. I'm Jean Cordova, author, activist of some 40 years. My first book was when I was a free press columnist. It was called Sexism, It's a Nasty Affair, a collection of essays about the early days of women's liberation. And then the second book was a memoir 
about my years in the convent. It was called Kicking the Habit. The latest book is When We Were Outlaws, A Memoir of Love and Revolution. And it covers a period of time between 1974 and 1977. Those three years, I was an investigative reporter for the Free Press, the L.A. Free Press, which was the predecessor of the L.A. Weekly, but far more radical. I was also the publisher of The Lesbian Tide, which was a national feminist lesbian magazine. In this memoir, I backtracked to several big things that happened in 71 and 73, and it's about the politics of the time. As a free press reporter, I interviewed Angela Davis and Emily Harris of the Symbionese Liberation Army and a number of people. I was always off in the field, and so the book tells the political story of what were the predominant issues in the mid-70s and early 70s, particularly in the gay liberation and lesbian movement and the new left. For Jean, the road to coming out was not only rough, but it took a detour through a nunnery. My parents were pretty darn bigoted and uh, very Catholic. So it was sort of natural that I go into a convent being raised in a very Catholic home. But there are two factors. One is I thought I was very much in love with God and Mary and all that. And I probably was. And the second thing is, subconsciously, I really wanted to avoid marriage. And that was the only alternative that seemed to be there. This was before women started working in careers. At that point, Jean was still in the dark about her sexuality. Being in a strong Catholic family, I didn't even hear the word. So I didn't know. I actually came out in the convent. That's why I say subconsciously, I wanted to be in a world of women. So that's why a lot of lesbians do go into the nunnery, mostly unconsciously, but they want to avoid the world of men and are attracted to the world of women. And it seems like a a real natural choice. And then if you're in love with God and praying all the time, and I was, then it fits. And it's, it's acceptable by your parents. After she accepted she was a lesbian, Jean left the convent and really began her journey. I had just come out and I was looking desperately for other gay people. So I looked up in the telephone book and I remembered from high school that gay-looking women were on softball teams. So I joined a softball team. But after a couple years, I got very bored, and I was in college, and on the team they called me the college kid, the one going to UCLA, and it just wasn't enough for me. So I got really lonely, and I was saying, aren't there any political or literary lesbians? There must be some somewhere in the world, and I need to find them because I was very immersed in social work and working in Watts. And so when I found the DOB quite accidentally, and I walked down those basement steps, it's in the bottom of a church, I remember seeing, oh, here are organized women sitting around talking about homosexuality. They're actually talking about it, and they're talking about the government, and they're talking about dreams about someday not living this way in a basement. And I was thrilled. I just bought the whole package, and I thought, that's where I need to be, and I stayed. The DOB, or Daughters of Belitis, was the first lesbian rights organization in the United States. And in the early 1970s, Jean Cordova became involved with a number of L.A.'s early gay and lesbian organizations. In the beginning, there was nothing. 
sort of like Genesis. Then I met Morris Kite and a handful of Gay Liberation Front men, one woman, and I had just found the daughters. I was president of the L.A. branch, and we kind of fell into talking with each other. The Women's Center, feminism, had just come to L.A. in 1970 also. So in, as far as L.A., both the gay movement and the women's movement were kind of born at the same time in L.A. They started at different times in New York, the women's movement in 66 and the gays in 69. But by the time we got it out here, I was a lesbian feminist by then. I left DOB. And we started talking. Morris Kite, he was a veteran. He was like 50 years old, which seemed to us 20-year-olds as ancient. And he said, and even the women's movement said, what about building a counterculture? What about making, making things, organizations? We didn't think about institutions because that was too establishment. But we said, why don't we make places so we can go and all gays can go to these places? And we won't have to live in the straight world. We can live in a world of women or a world of queers. So Morris began making up organizations. And a couple years later, I began also. And like he started the Gay Community Services Center, which is still over there now, and uh, Christopher Street West, the Gay Pride Organization, and Stonewall Democratic Club. And that's just the mid-'70s. Those were his babies, and I joined him in a lot of them. Then I started making my own babies, and I guess the first one was the Lesbian Tide magazine. She was my first and eldest child. It started really small, like a DOB newsletter, but it grew into a national voice, and people began asking for it in college towns. That was the interesting thing. Um, I began to notice we'd have, you know, like 25 subscribers from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then 20 subscribers from a place called Durham, South Carolina. And after a while, it occurred to me, these are all the college towns. And the paper grew and grew, and it became one of the two largest during that decade. This is Steve Pride, and we're talking to author-activist Jean Cordova. In uh, 74, I started working as a journalist at the Freep, at the L.A. Free Press. I came aboard as a columnist because I was a Chicana and a feminist and a dyke. And Art Kunkin, the publisher, thought, oh, that covers three of my bases, you know. But then I morphed into being a human rights editor and an investigative reporter. Luckily, the later publisher, Penny Grenoble, had a lot of faith in me. And so she sent me to interview some really famous people. And it was in the 70s when the SLA, Symbian East Liberation Army, kidnapped Patty Hearst the summer of 75. And everybody was looking for her. And I was more interested in Patty Hearst's sidekick, Emily Harris, because I think Patty was just a bourgeois lady who happened to get kidnapped because of who her father was. But Emily Harris and Bill Harris, I wanted to know what turned college kids my own age, we were all the same age, like 25, 26 years old, into a revolutionary struggle that included picking up guns. I thought I was in revolutionary struggle and studying Marxism and doing my bit, but I was wondering whether or not I would go into armed struggle. Would I pick up a gun to defend or to further my beliefs? Would I blow up something? 
Another of her brief interviews was with controversial Black Panther anarchist Angela Davis, who Jean suspected was hiding something. When I met and interviewed Angela Davis, she seemed so obviously, this was 74, she seemed to me so butch and so lesbian. And so I really tried to get her to come out as gay. But she wasn't buying it then. Becoming well-known for her hard-hitting interviews with Emily Harris and Angela Davis led to not only a fanatic following for her column, but an occasional actual fanatic. So every week, it seemed, people then would start calling up and asking for Cordova. That's how I met my Nazi. He was uh, the local captain of the El Monte Nazi Party. Only he was more into armed struggle, so he had placed a couple bombs. And then toward the end of my interviews, he gets killed, and then the FBI comes chasing me into the free press office. So I had some pretty wild adventures, and I also learned a lot politically from all those people. And Jean was there for the start of the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center. Now a major institution with a $40 million annual budget, its origins were grassroots, and its birth, difficult. The motivations to starting the center is mostly Don Kilhefner and Morse Kite and John Platania. And their original motivation was to get these street kids coming out of the Midwest who are committing suicide and running away from home. Back then, there was a lot more running away from home and I think less suicide. That's the way it seemed at the time. So Morris and Don wanted to collect all these kids and give them food and jobs and a bed overnight and help them get started in life. And so that was the dawn of Gay as Social Service Center. But we really needed it back then. There were just hundreds or thousands coming out to their families and then being thrown out. So I think that motivation was probably good. It was odd for me to see my mentor, who was an activist, begin to turn into a social services social worker. And I struggled with that and didn't agree with it. And then in terms of people of color or women, the early center, these guys were not very open and didn't understand lesbians at all. And people of color were nowhere to be seen in the early days. And in the summer of 1975, those differences became too much. And it almost brought an end to the fledgling L.A. Gay and Lesbian Center. What happened is the government gave the center $939,000, almost a million bucks, in 74 for the Alcoholism Center for Women. So three-year grant, so 300000 a year. So the center went out and hired, they had to hire women to run the alcoholism program for women, which still exists today. It's called the Alcoholism Center for Women on Alvarado. So they went out and hired a bunch of us, but they didn't realize that we were feminist. We were gay women, but we had also become feminists. And when we got to GCSC, which was the the gay center, it was extremely male-dominated, and there was no way to work yourself up into any administrative post. There were no lesbians. There's one lesbian on the board of directors, none in management. And so the strike was protesting those things. And it was the time when the center male board could have opened up their arms and welcomed feminist lesbians. And that was the challenge. They could have, but they didn't. They didn't want feminist 
they didn't want anything that looked like it was collective or consensus. They wanted to own it, and they did own it. And the strike was about their ownership on the handful of people versus allowing feminism to come and be part of the center. The women's movement was very young, and it was the gay movement's opportunity to accept feminism, uh, even among the men. I mean, nothing wrong with men becoming feminists. And I kind of thought my mentor, Morris Kite, was, I guess because he was so politically advanced in so many ways, like racism and stuff, that I thought he would naturally be a feminist. But they turned us down repeatedly. They fired 16 of their employees that day in May, most of us lesbian feminists. And that's what caused the great strike. We went out and protested. They denied us unemployment. And it's really a story of the women's movement and the gay movement, the beginnings and them clashing, the first major clash in L.A. of those two movements. Jean went on to start the first Gay and Lesbian Yellow Pages, and at an age when others retire, is still an active LGBTIQ organizer. So what advice does she have for the new generation of activists? That activism is important and critical for all ages, whether it's Occupy Wall Street now, uh, which I love, or some other movement in five years, that activism should be part of, I think, everyone's life that it's very enhancing. You meet people, you learn about issues, you stay current. And the second thing, I think, is that trying to keep a balance in your life between your work and your relationship is a struggle for activists and others. This has been a conversation with Jean Cordova. Her new book is called When We Were Outlaws, a memoir of love and revolution. For more information, visit her at jeancordova.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Jean, Jean, the roses are red, and all the leaves have gone green, and the clouds are so low, you can touch them, and so. Jean Cordova died January 10, 2016. Her Lambda Literary and Goldie Award-winning memoir was When We Were Outlaws, a memoir of love and revolution. There's still time for a last word. Today, that's this LGBT History Month story about the founding of IMRU nearly 50 years ago. Since the dawn of creation, one eternal question has been asked down through the ages. A question which has been known to strike fear into the hearts and minds of decent people everywhere. A question so overwhelming in its challenge to human identity that some people have been driven to the brink of despair whenever such a question has been asked of them. Are you ready to accept the challenge? Do you dare to confront the question of the ages? Are you? In 1974, KPFK, Tuesday nights at 11, 
was, as I recall, their sex hour. The first Tuesday of the month was Lesbian Sisters. The third Tuesday of the month was a program for gay men called Gay at Heart, hosted by a guy who went by the name of Morning Glory. His claim to fame, from what I understand, was that he had then L.A. County Supervisor Ed Edelman on the program during the oil crisis, and he asked Edelman if that was going to impact the availability of KY lubricant. Anyway, that probably would give you some idea of the nature of that program. Anyway, Morning Glory decided to leave town. He was moving to Georgia to be with his partner. KPFK went to the Gay Community Services Center, which is what it was called at the time, near downtown L.A., put up flyers looking for a person or persons to take over for that third Tuesday of the month gay men's program time slot. I was uh, facilitating rap groups at the time, and a guy by the name of Enric Morello and Colin McQueen and I, we volunteered basically to, to come in, and our first program was in August of 1974. It was a live show, and I think the subject was myths about gay men. And it was open phones, and we didn't take over the name Gay at Heart. The first name I can remember of the collective was the Great Gay Radio Conspiracy. And eventually, we came upon IMRU. I remember driving to our first program, trying to figure out whether I was going to use my real name on the air or not. And keep in mind, this was August of 74. And I decided, what the heck? And I did. And I had never had a better understanding of what the feeling of being liberated felt like until I was driving home from that broadcast because I felt so free. Um, we did our first production feature in February of 1975. The station had a theme of that month, which was romance. And so our program was Gay Romance, Some Alternatives for the 70s. And we divided it into monogamous relationships, open relationships, and being single, and the proponents for each of those. And we mixed with music, and it was had pre-recorded. Yeah, those were heydays, I guess. I've been at this for a long time. I... I shudder to think about that from time to time, but I've explained to people, like my brother, for example, expressed disappointment in me because he doesn't feel like I achieved the potential that I could have achieved with my life professionally. And I've tried to explain to him that I really, it may sound corny, but I've, I felt this is sort of a calling. Just turn your radio on. Turn your radio this is Helene Rosenbluth from Lesbian Sisters. And this is Greg Gordon from the Gay Radio Collective. Lesbian Sisters, providing programming specifically geared to lesbian women, airs on the first Tuesday of each month at 10 p.m. And the Gay Radio Collective presents IMRU on all other Tuesday nights at 10. Lesbian Sisters and IMRU will continue to bring you lively discussions, music, poetry, comedy sketches, and the news of the gay community. Now, Tuesday nights at 10 on listener-supported radio for all of Southern California, KPFK 90.7 FM. Please join us. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. 
Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, because we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Alternate. Good night. My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. Mama she rolled her hair and put her lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are. She said, cause it made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, boy, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say, I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. Way, hey, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way, hey.